Good evening. Good to see you here this evening. Good to be with you. And really, it's just good to be around uh, other people. Um, who's uh, been trapped with a two-year-old for the last four months? <laughs> uh, I think, uh, you know, two-year-olds, when they learn something new, they just repeat it over and over and over again. And so uh, the, the phrase or the question that I've heard for the, for the last uh, few months is, hey, what you doing here? <laughs> and, and it comes out of nowhere. I mean, we could be in the middle of watching a movie as a family, and she'll look up and say, hey, what you doing here? And uh, my answer is uh, always the same. I live here. Get out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I've enjoyed some of the time with my, with my family, but it's good to be here with you this evening. I wish it was under uh, better circumstances. It, it just feels so uh, unnatural or awkward not to be able to shake hands and and hug necks, and I know so many of you here, and have so many friends here, and I wish so badly that I could greet you that way, and so just please take this as arms wide open uh, greeting for you this evening, but glad you're here, good to be with you. If you'd like, go ahead and be opening your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and open them to Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, and if you've got a bookmarker something, mark that, and turn in your Bibles back to Jeremiah 49. Jeremiah 49, and I want to look at verses 17 and 18 with you here in, in just a second. When you think about cities that have been completely destroyed or completely demolished all at one time, it would seem like at all at one instance, the ancient Roman city of Pompeii comes to my mind. It's AD 79, a nearby earthquake, uh, excuse me, volcano uh, erupted there and uh, it covered an entire city of people with volcanic ash. It's estimated that roughly 2,000 people died in that event and that city was lost. It was abandoned for nearly 1,700 years before a group of explorers stumbled upon it and they were surprised to find under a thick carpet of, of ash the ancient city of, of Pompeii preserved, pretty much intact and, and preserved by that volcanic ash, which means that they found homes, they found buildings, they found artifacts, and they found people. Skeletons and, and even pretty much full bodies preserved by that ash. If you've seen the pictures of, of those people in their final moments, in that, in that mo moment of horror, in that moment of, of terror, you can see kind of the, the grimace and the fear on their face. Some of them are in fetal positions. They have their hands covering their face. Some of them, it would look as though they tried to run and, and fell and, and began crawling, trying to escape. Some of them have their hands up just trying to shield themselves. But if you can begin to imagine what it must have been like to have that that lava and that magma and that hot ash raining down 
on your head. I, I think that that would be the closest example, and I don't even think it would do it justice. I don't think it would come close. But I think it would be the closest example that we would have as to what the people of Sodom and Gomorrah experienced when God utterly destroyed those cities and those territories. We read about God's plans as He makes them known to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 that the sin and the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah had come up before God and it's there that Abraham begins to, to try and bargain with God. You know, he starts at 50. Lord, if, there's, if you find 50 righteous people in these, in these cities, in this area, would you not spare uh, for the sake of 50 righteous and 45 and 40 and 30 and 20, all the way down to 10. And yet, not even 10 righteous people could be found. And so it's in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 24 that we read of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. As the Bible says that the Lord rained down fire and brimstone from heaven. And as Abraham stood from a distance, somewhere elevated, somewhere where he had a vantage point that he could see everything that was going on, there in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 28, he explained or described what he was seeing as smoke rising up, as smoke rises up from a furnace. God had completely and utterly destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's interesting about that, that event and that passage in Scripture is that really from that point on, any time that God wants to make an example or He wants to warn a group of people about a coming judgment, guess what He uses as a reference point? You come over to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and in verse 23, He's warning His own people, if you rebel, the same thing that happened to Sodom and Gomorrah will happen to you. Come over to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 24 as the Lord is preaching to some of those cities that are rebellious and you've got Capernaum there and, and they're refusing to repent at the preaching of Jesus, at the signs and, and His miracles. And He tells them, it, it will be better for the men of Sodom than for you on the judgment day. You look at Luke chapter 17 verses 28 and through verse 30 and and the Lord there compares the ultimate judgment day, the, the day when He will return and, and judge all to that of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says it's just like the days of Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were eating, uh, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. And the Lord rained down from heaven fire and brimstone. And so it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. And then there is Edom. God uses that situation of Sodom and Gomorrah to explain and to illustrate to them their coming judgment. And you find that here in Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 17 and, and 18. 
And Edom will become an object of horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all its wounds. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord, no one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. How would you like to be the Edomites? How would you like to be a resident in one of the cities of the nation of the kingdom of Edom? And I bring that to your attention this evening. Because as we make our way over to this minor prophet, Obadiah, that we're going to be studying this evening, that's what the book is all about. Obadiah is elaborating on God's judgment against Edom. And that's what makes the book somewhat unique from any other book. Not only is Obadiah the the smallest book in the Old Testament, one chapter, 21 verses, but it's also unique, especially amongst the, the prophets, both major and minor, in the fact that Majority of prophets have messages that are directed at God's people, whereas Obadiah has a message that's for God's people, but it's directed, it's directed at, at Edom. And he spends this, this one chapter book, this 21 verses, explaining how he's going to judge them, why he's going to judge them, when he is going to judge them. And so just to kind of give you a, a gist, the, the overwhelming part of, of the book is why. He keeps coming back to that theme, why I'm judging you. This is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm pouring my wrath out on you. And so just to have a, a little bit of an understanding as we go into this, this study this evening, I tell you the gist, at least, of, of why God is, is judging uh, Edom. God is judging Edom because it, they had acted... They had acted wickedly and they had acted cruelly towards God's people, Judah. Judah, at, at some point, and, and, and we don't really know the date of, of Obadiah, we don't know the specific uh, situation in which Obadiah is, is referring to, but at some point uh, along the way, uh, Judah had suffered a devastating attack at the hands of, of one of their enemies. And instead of Edom coming to their aid, instead of Edom, Edom coming to help them, Edom stood by and, and watched. Edom acted cruel, cruelly towards them. Uh, Edom mistreated them during their, mis, their misfortune. And so that, that's the gist. That's, that's why God is, is coming down on them so harshly and and, and so, uh, so strictly, if you're here in Obadiah, just look at, at verse 1. The, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. And here is, here is God through this vision to Obadiah, and he's, he's setting the tone of this book. I'm bringing the nations, I'm gathering some of the, the, the armies of the world, and I'm bringing them against Edom. And I'm going to destroy Edom. I'm going to, to judge Edom. 
because of the way they treated my people during a difficult time of their lives. And so we kind of just continue to, to introduce this, this book. I, I, I do want to touch a little bit on the context and, and the background to, to which maybe helps us better understand uh, how it's gotten to this point. You know, how do you, how do you get to the point that Edom could have so much hatred, so much anger and, and animosity directed towards, directed towards uh, Judah? And there's a, there's a few clues in, in the text that would tell us, hey, we need to go back and, and read a little bit of, of, of history here. But look at verse 8 here. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? That's what you call parallelism there. Edom and Esau are, are used interchangeably. And, and then I remember, hey, Edom is the descendants of Esau. You remember, you go back to Genesis 25 and verse 30, and Esau was renamed, he was named Edom. But then you, you just continue reading here, and you remember who Esau was, verse 10, because of violence to your brother Jacob. They were, they were twin boys, they were twin, twin brothers. And that term... That term brother is, is how God would, would stand back and, and view the two, the two boys. It's how God would stand back and, and view the two men. And it's how God would stand back and, and view the two nations. Deuteronomy 23 verse 7, God warns His people. God tells Israel, you do not despise an Edomite, for they are your brother. And though God considered the two nations to be brotherly nations, Edom didn't quite see it that way. Of course, the, the animosity and, and the hatred and, and the anger, it starts with the two boys. The, the two boys wrestled in, in the womb of, of Rebekah, if you, if you recall. and she, she wants to know why it is, and she, she asks God, and God tells her there's two nations in you, and one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And so when they're born, you remember Esau comes out first, he's the oldest, and there's Jacob holding on to the hill. And as they grow and they develop their own personalities, as all children do, they were, they were different. You've got Esau, who's more of an outdoorsman, he's a, a hunter and, a, and a, enjoys working with his hands, it would seem, but then you've got uh, you've got Jacob, who appreciates being indoors, likes to cook and, and things like that. And so you've got the, the first event that really caused a, a little bit of a, a wedge to be, you know, division, to be placed between the, the two boys when Esau comes in that day and, and he's been working and he's just famished and, and there's Jacob, he's been cooking a pot of stew and, and Esau says, Give me a bite of, of that stew, for I am famished. And Jacob thinks for a second, and he says, Well, first, you sell me your birthrights. Esau basically responds and says, Well, you know, what good are my birthrights if I'm dead? And so, here you go. Here's my birthrights. He sells Jacob his birthrights for a pot of, of lentil stew. The Bible says right there at the end of, of chapter 25 that 
Esau began to despise his birthright. And it doesn't stop right there. You skip over a couple of chapters into Genesis 27, and you've got another event that, that comes up where now Isaac, their father, he's growing old. He doesn't have much time, and so he wants to, he wants to give a blessing to his oldest son, Esau. And so he calls Esau in, and he wants him to go out. He wants him to hunt. And whatever he kills, he wants him to bring it back and, and prepare it for his father. And once his father's eaten, he'll bless his, his oldest son. But there's Rebecca, and she's listening in. And so she conspires, and she goes and gets Jacob, and she says, I want you to go out uh, to the flock and get a couple of, of kids, bring them in, and I'll cook them just the way your father likes them. I'm going to send you in. I'm going to take their skin. Remember, Esau was kind of a hairy man, and so she takes the skin of the goats and puts it on Jacob's hands and the back of Jacob's neck, and Jacob goes in and he deceives Isaac. Isaac's in his old age. Isaac can't see well, and, and Isaac eats, and he blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And there, towards the end of that, in Genesis 29 and verse 41, Here's really where it starts. The Bible says that Esau began to hold a grudge against Jacob. To the point that Esau now wants to kill his younger brother. He, he knows his, son, his, his father's close to dying, and so he doesn't want to kill his brother while his father's still alive. So he says, I'm going to wait till Isaac dies. But once Isaac dies, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. Rachel hears about that, and so Rachel sends Jacob away, and Jacob goes to live with, uh, with Laban for about 20 years or so. And it's, it's kind of surprising, because you would think during that time that that hatred and that animosity with Esau would have just continued to swell and fester and, and grow, but you come over about 20 or so years removed from that in Genesis 32 and 33, where Jacob and Esau meet back up and Jacob's getting ready to, to meet Esau, and he thinks Esau's just going to you know, mow him down. He thinks Esau's going to kill him, and he, what does Esau do? Esau embraces him and hugs him. It's just like this family reunion, and, and Esau's forgotten. Somewhere along the way, Esau put it down, and, and, he, and he forgot it. But not his descendants. In fact, let me just read something to you. You can... You could stay there in Obadiah, or if you want to, you can go over to Numbers 20. But here in Numbers 20, uh, verses 14 through verse 21, you've got Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. They've been there for about 430 years, and so we're roughly 430 years uh, removed from Egyptian uh, 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 from their, their time in, in, in Egyptian, their 430 years or so. So you have at least that much time that's separating you know, Jacob and Esau, a lot more time than that for, for 430 plus years. And it's interesting that, that the brothers, they had buried the hatchet. They had figured out a way there in chapter 33 that, that they were going to love each other and, and get along, but not their descendants. Numbers 20 and verse 14, From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother, notice that, that terminology, Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us, and our fathers, uh, the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. 
But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please, let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We shall not even drink water from a well. We shall go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, lest I come out with the sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We shall go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force, and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. That's so interesting to me. So you've got the time from, from Jacob and, and Esau all the way up to the time God's people go into Egypt. Then you've got 430 years in Egypt. Then you fast forward to where we are in Obadiah. And at least even at 430 plus years, Edom had reignited this feud. Edom had re-sparked this, this anger. And they had animosity there in Numbers chapter 20. But you come to Obadiah and you're talking about 12, 13, 1400 years since the two brothers. And you've got a time period of, of those years where this is just festering, this just swelling, this hatred, this resentment, this, this holding a grudge, and it's being passed down from father to son, father to son, generation to generation, until you get to Obadiah. And what you find, and, and basically just to kind of summarize all of this before we dive into to the book, is that Edom had held a grudge for, for so long, and they had harbored hatred in their heart for so long towards their brother, Jacob, that it eventually got the best of them. And it eventually consumed them. And it brought God's wrath down upon them. And I think there's some lessons that we can learn from this. Lest we be tempted to, to ever go the way of, of Edom. I, I think there's some lessons about holding on to hatred and anger and, and resentment that, that we can learn from, from the book of, of Obadiah. And the first is, is this. If, if you want to hold on to, to hatred towards someone, someone's wronged you, someone's uh, done something to, to hurt you, and, and you want to hold on to hatred, and you want to hold a grudge, and you want to hold on to anger and animosity towards them, just know that that hatred and that animosity and that anger will deceive you with arrogance. Look at, look at verse 3 and, and verse 4. The arrogance of your heart, talking to Edom, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there... I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
So we're beginning to look at how Edom had been deceived by their pride, how Edom had been deceived by, by their arrogance. What you have is, so that they've divided themselves from, from Jacob. They've allowed this hatred to, to drive a wedge between them, and they filled that gap with hatred, and they continued to throw fire, uh, fuel on the fire, and fuel it with, with hatred to the point that they've run to their side, to the side of, of Edom, and they began to trust in their own ways. They began to trust in their own strengths, in their own territory. They, they believe that they are positioned in a place that, that cannot be defeated, that it cannot be uh, conquered. Edom, Edom's territory was, was positioned in a very mountainous range. In fact, the, the capital of, of Edom was on this towering cliff. And so, of course, that gave them a great vantage point to be able to defend themselves, made it very hard for their enemies to come up a, against them. They could see, just from this vantage point alone, they could see miles and miles away so that if anyone was coming, they had plenty of time, ample time to prepare themselves for, for battle. But, but add to that, because of where they, they lived amongst the, the mountains, amongst the cliffs, amongst the, the rocks, the, the only way to get to them was through very narrow territories, very narrow paths, and so it wasn't like you could come up on them with this great big army and just rush them and have strength in numbers. No, your strength in numbers would be dwindled down to however many you could fit through that, that pathway. Made it extremely easy to defend to the point that they had become so prideful, so arrogant that they would step back and say, look at us up here in our fortified cities. Who can come against us? Who could conquer us? Who could bring us down? And in verse 4, God says, I will. Causes me to, to step back for, for just a second and ask myself and ask you, who do you put your trust in? What or who are you putting your faith and hope in? Is it in, your, is it in your wealth? Is it in your savings account? Is, is it in your retirement plan that you find security, that you find safety, that you find a, a future? Maybe it's in your own talents or, or abilities. You just, you know, you're pretty good at, at what you do. And, you know, if, if hard times come on me, you know, I'm pretty good. I can, I can handle myself. Maybe it's in a political party. You know, if, if my guy or gal gets into office, then we'll be okay. Um, if he or she doesn't, then it's time to where there's no hope for us. Matthew chapter 16 and, and verse 13, Jesus comes to the district of Caesarea and Philippi, and he asks his disciples a question. He says, who do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The disciples said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them this. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, little rock, and upon this rock, big rock, I will build my church, 
and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. When you look at the nation of Edom, Edom put their faith, their trust, their security, their hope in the wrong rock. The rock that Jesus is talking about there in Matthew chapter 16 is that confession that Peter made that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the rock. He is the rock of our salvation. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone of His church, of His body that belongs to Him, of that group that will be saved on the day of judgment. And it's interesting to me that He calls Peter a man, a little rock, and the confession of Jesus, the big rock. Unless we go the way of Edom and and we put our trust, our faith in the wrong rock like they did, in something that is man-made, and something that is powered by man, and something that's secured by man, we can learn from this account that we don't need to be blinded by our hatred and fueled to the point that we get so blinded that we put our trust in the wrong thing, that we need to be putting our trust in God, that we need to be putting our faith in, in Christ. But you come back to Obadiah and And just notice, if you skip over to to verse 7, he's going to continue to tell us how he's going to do it, how he's going to judge it, how he's going to destroy them. Verse 7, "All, All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is there is no understanding in him. God says, look, All these other nations that you think you're friends, all these other nations that you think you're allies, that, hey, if you get in a difficult situation that you can just call them and and they're going to help you, God says, no, I'm going to call them by my side and I'm going to send them in and they're going to completely destroy you. Verse verse 8 and verse 9, notice notice where where they found their wisdom. And and once again, notice where they found their, their strength. Verse 8, will, will I not that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed. O Teman, in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. They found, they found wisdom in and amongst themselves. They found wisdom, what they considered to be true wisdom, amongst their group amongst the side that that they had run to, they were putting their strength in in their mighty men, in their, what they would consider to be their wise men. Those wise men, their skillful men, those who had maybe built some of those cities and fortified them amongst the rocks. Some of those wise men who were their administrators, maybe of their economy, that that kept things rolling there for for Edom. Some of those wise men who were were crafty and, and, and were able to come up with battle strategies to, to defend Edom. That's who they were trusting in. That's who they were placing their hope in. Amongst their mighty men, their, their valiant warriors, their heroes on the battlefield, that's who they were trusting in. That's who they were putting their hope in. It reminds me of something the Apostle Paul wrote. If you want to look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
And just notice here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through, down to about verse 25, the compare and the contrast between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God, and the strength of man and the strength of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preached Christ crucified on Jews a to, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Don't ever allow our, our, our grudges and our hatred and our animosity to, to cause us to be deceived by so much arrogance and so much pride that we forget how great a God that we serve. To know that the best that we could bring to God is absolutely nothing before Him. His weakness could take care of the best that we have. Our smartest could be taking care of God very, very simply. And it's, and it's to that, God, going back to, to Obadiah, He says, I'll remove that understanding from you. I'll come on your, your mighty men so fast that they won't, even know, they won't even know what hit them. Verse 9 says they will be dismayed. The, the idea there behind dismayed is to, to lay prostrate full of fear and confusion. Because God's weakness is so much more powerful than the strongest man has to offer. But there's one more principle here that I want to bring to your attention before we, before we move on. And, and that's a principle that we see throughout the entire Bible, throughout the, the Word of God. And you see it in verse 2. You see it again in verse 5 and in verse 6. Look at verse 2. God says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are, you are greatly despised. Here's the, the idea is you think you're, you think you're something big. Edom, you, you think you're, you're larger than life. You've exalted yourself. Let me put it in New Testament terms. You've exalted yourself. Therefore, I will humble you. I will make you small. I will, I will bring you down. Verse 5 and verse 6, if, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. Would, would they not steal only until they had enough? If, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. He began, God continues to, to elaborate on how far down he is going to, to bring them. You see the picture that he's saying there. Somebody breaks into your home. They're going to only gather what they can carry out. Not these nations that invite. These nations will search them out. If you had grape gatherers, would they not just glean what they, what they needed is enough to, to fill themselves? Not these nations. They will take everything. They will search out their hidden treasures and remove it 
from the land. God says, you think you're, you're big, you've exalted yourself, and I'm going, I'm going to humble you. Then we move on to a, a second point that we see here, and, and that is if, if you want to hold on to, to anger and harbor hatred and, and animosity in your heart, just know that you will be covered with shame. Look at verse 10 and, and following here. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. You ever have your, your mama tell you, you ought to be ashamed of the way you acted in that restaurant. You ought to be ashamed of the way you acted in church today. I don't, I'm so embarrassed, I don't even want to go out in public with you anymore. I might have heard that a time or two growing up. But that's what God is, is, is basically... You ought to be ashamed of the way that you treated your brother Jacob. And because of that, you will be covered with shame. The, the idea is to be in, completely engulfed with, with that of humility. But, but notice, notice their behavior towards them. Notice why they should have been shamed for, for the way that they treated their brother Jacob. Verse 11, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. When the attack came, when the enemies came upon when the enemies came upon Judah Edom just stood well the term says they stood aloof the idea there to stand aloof or stood aloof is, is the idea to to stand before to stand in front of to stand opposite to stand nearby to to stand around it's it's what it's what you do when you go to a sporting event Go to a Braves game. You go to a, a Falcons game. How's the stadium design? The players are, are in the middle, and what do you do? You're nearby. You're around. They're before you. They're out in front of you, and you're a spectator, and you watch. And that's what Edom did when Judah was attacked. They just stood by, and, and, they, and they watched, and... And it wasn't like they made the choice here, at least in verse 11. It, it wasn't like God was saying, well, you made the choice to do physical harm. No, you just didn't do anything. And at the end of verse 11, because you didn't do anything, you, you're, just like, you're just like one of the foreigners that entered the city. What does James say in, in James chapter 4 and in, in verse 17? Uh, Therefore, to him who knows the right thing and does not do it, to him it is sin. You look over at, at 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and, and verses 14 down to, to about verse 18. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods 
And notice this. This is exactly what, what Edom did. And beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. The shame of, of Edom was that they were so blinded by their hatred, so fueled by rage, that they missed out on an opportunity to partake in godly love. They missed out on an opportunity to, to practice brotherly love. And that's what hatred and, and animosity will... That's what it will rob you of. And it will cover you. It will cover you with shame. But, but continue with this idea. Why... Why should they have been ashamed of themselves? Look at verse 12 and verse 13. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of, of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of, of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. They didn't just stand by as spectators, as like a sport, like fans watching a sporting event. They cheered it on. They were, they were gloating over the destruction of, of Judah. The, the idea of joding, gloating there is, is to stand over and, and to observe, and, and while you're doing it, mm-hmm, yep, told you that was going to happen to them. And it, and it brings you it brings you a little bit of pleasure. That's what it was doing for them. They, they were rejoicing in the misfortunes of of Judah. It's tempting. That's that's the way a, a lot of a lot of people act. Uh, that's the way a, a lot of mankind that they, they fall into that temptation that that maybe somebody's hurt them or somebody's done something to them, and then bad times come on that person and. It kind of brings them a little bit of joy to see that person over there suffering. You know, I, I'm the one that should have got the promotion at work. Not that guy over there. I'm, I'm glad he got fired last week. Or my son should have made varsity. He was, he was much better than that other kid. I'm glad that other kid uh, twisted his ankle. Or, you know, she's been, she's, she's driven fancy cars and worn fancy clothes, and I'm, I'm glad that her husband's business went bankrupt. You see what that, that hatred and, and that animosity, once again, look at the New Testament, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and just count. I don't even know. I didn't even take a count. Do this on your own time. Count. How many times Jesus came upon somebody that was in need and the Bible says he was moved with compassion or he felt compassion for that individual. See, hatred and animosity and grudge holding, it will rob you of that compassion that God wants us to have for, for others. Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this, verse 14 and verse 15. He says, Bless those who persecute you, Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're to have compassion. And if you continue reading there in Romans chapter 12, he's going to talk about enemies and how Christians should respond and how Christians should treat their enemies. But God's people are to feel compassion for those 
who are suffering, even if those are people who you would count uh, to be your enemy. But the problem with, with all of this, before we move on, is it's there in verse 10. It, it keeps coming back to this idea that Jacob was your brother. You treated your brother like that. You didn't help your brother. When people started escaping, if you, if you look at verse 14, when people started escaping the, the city, you cut them down. You knew exactly the roads that they would take to escape, and you cut them down. You met them at those roads. You took some of them prisoners. You made some of them your brother. You made them your slave. A couple questions that, that we come across in Scripture. Am I my brother's keeper? Who is my neighbor? We might change that just a little bit for the purpose of this lesson. Who is my brother? Typically when we use the term brother or sister in a, in a setting like that, most of the time it, it's referring to those who are of the family of God, your, your spiritual family, those who belong to Christ. But there's another sense in which it's used in, in the Bible. And you look over in Acts chapter 17 when Paul comes to, to Athens and, and Paul's, Paul's trying to teach these people who do not know the one true God. He's trying to teach them something about God that, that He is their Creator. And, and just notice what, what Paul says here as he's explaining God to these people who do not know God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. There's another sense in which the term brother is used, and that's through creation. Every person that's ever existed, every human being that's ever existed, comes from God, created by God. And in that sense, that person is a brother or sister through creation. And it just shows us that that idea that Jacob and Esau came from one father. And in the sense of creation, we all come from one father. How God views His creation. And how important it is for you to view other people the way that God would have you to view them. The third thing, coming back to, to Obadiah, is, is holding on to, to hatred and, and anger and animosity. Verse 15 says, your dealings will return on your head. It will return 
on your own head. I don't know if you've ever seen some of those, uh, some of those videos of somebody that take a basketball and, and they throw it behind them and it goes through the hoop and, and they don't even look. They just throw it behind them and the whole time they're just you know, saying something funny or saying something cool and it looks pretty cool when it goes through the hoop. Have you ever seen the, the bloopers and they throw it behind them and it hits the rim and bounces off the rim and they're still looking at the camera and it just pegs them right in the back of the head. It comes right back on top of their head. What they threw out came right back on top of them. And that's exactly that's what God's saying here. Verse 16, Because just as you drink on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. And so there's Edom. After it was all said and done, after Jacob had been destroyed, there's the nation of Edom standing over the land of, of Jacob, the, the land of, of Judah, and they're drinking in celebration. And God says that will come right back on you. You want to talk about a picture of drinking from the cup of the wrath of God. God says others will stand above you and will drink and drink and swallow and completely consume and swallow you up until it was like you never, ever existed. It's kind of the law of the, the harvest, isn't it? Galatians chapter 6 and verses 7 and following, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For if a man sows to the flesh, to the flesh he will reap corruption. If a man sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit he will reap everlasting life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for we will reap soon if we do not grow weary. So then, let us do good to all men, and especially those of the household of faith. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Whatever you deal out, it'll come back on you. And if you have the opportunity to help somebody that you know, and I'm not, I'm not telling you to be you know, unwise with that which God has entrusted you. I'm telling you to be a good steward of what God has entrusted you with. But if you have the opportunity to help somebody that you know desperately needs it, and you're like that individual that just closes up your heart, you're like Edom. Maybe that person's wronged you in the past, and there's no, there's no way you're going to help that individual God says, well, you can expect that to come back. You can expect that to come back on you. But then, fourth and finally, and here's where all of this has been headed this, this entire time. If you hold on to grudges, and you allow hatred to rule your life, and you harbor animosity, eventually it's going, it's going to consume you. Verse 18, Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivors of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. God's basically saying that there's going to come a time that my people are going to come out of exile. And this might even be pointing towards uh, a prophecy towards the, the New Testament, towards God's people in, in the New Testament. But he says, my people are going to come out of, out of exile, but not Edom. Edom, Esau's descendants, they're going to be like, they're going to be like hay. 
They're going to be like straw, something that's easily burned up, something that's easily consumed by fire. If you notice in and around this, this description of, of them being consumed, just notice a couple more verses. Verse 17 and, and verse 21 that, that really speaks to messianic type language. Verse 17 says, But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be, it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And Look down at verse 21. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion, the judge... To, the, to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. When we come over to, to the New Testament, especially, let's say, in Hebrews chapter 12, we know who the spiritual Mount Zion is. We know who the heavenly Jerusalem is. We know who those are who have escaped sin, who have escaped the, the wrath of God. We know who those are who belong to the kingdom of God. And that's, that's you and me. That, that's Christians. That's anybody who's ever, ever obeyed the gospel. And God expects something of, of His people. God expects something of those who belong to His kingdom. Those are His holy people. And, and we see this over in Ephesians chapter 4. And, and we'll just wrap up here in, in Ephesians chapter 4 as we bring this to a, to a close. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, talking to Christians, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There's a worthy way for us as Christians to walk. And he's going to spend chapter 4 explaining that to us. But part of that worthy walk, we skip over to to verse 25 and, and notice what he says. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That idea of, of laying aside, he's just been talking about the, the old man versus the new man, and he's saying, lay the old man aside, just like you would come in from working out in the yard, and your clothes are just dirty and filthy and covered in sweat, and you would lay those clothes aside. Paul's saying, take off the old man and lay him aside and when you do, there's a certain way you're going to act. There's a certain way that you're going to behave towards others. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. You know, anger, anger is a natural response. God, God gave us the ability. He created us with the ability to get angry at, at certain situations, but... But what Paul's talking about here is you don't let that anger consume you. You you don't hold on to it. You don't dwell on it. You don't fester on it like the nation of Edom did for, you know, 14, 1500 years. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Figure out a way rather quickly to set that anger aside. I don't know if you've ever taken something that's just relatively light, something like a cup of water or, you know, even a book, and you just hold it out to your side. At first, there's not much to it. But the longer you hold, the longer you hold, the longer you hold, the more it starts to burn in the shoulders. The more you have to fight to hold it up. And the more it continues to burn. But the pain stops whenever you lay it down. 
whenever you, whenever you set it down. Paul says, don't give Satan an opportunity in your life. You're holding on to it. And that's the opportunity that Satan needs to insert himself into your life. If you've ever been getting on an elevator and it's just about to close and somebody, right at the last moment, somebody sticks their hand right in the door and the elevator doors come back open. And that's Satan inserting himself into your life because you didn't take care of that anger. You didn't set down that resentment. You didn't lay aside that animosity. And you, you just continue reading verse 31 and verse 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We've got to be people that are ready and willing to forgive and anger and animosity and hatred will get in the way of that every time. I appreciate you Allow me to be here this evening. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate those who have viewed online. Uh, thank you so much for having me this evening. I think we're going to have a closing prayer. Is that right? Okay. Thank you.